Pop Culture Affidavit presents 80 Years of DC Comics, Episode 17, Westerns. Hello and welcome to episode 17 in the podcast miniseries Pop Culture Affidavit Presents 80 Years of DC Comics, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. The purpose of this podcast miniseries is to highlight comic book genres that DC Comics has published that go beyond their main superhero titles, as well as list stories that are not on your typical top 10 lists. This is the penultimate episode in the series, and this time around, I'm going to be taking a look at the very last non-superhero genre on my list, a genre that has been with DC Comics for as long as it has been a company, which is Westerns. Uh, You may have noticed this episode is coming out quite a while after my last episode on War Comics, Uh, not to get too behind the scenes about it, but it was a confluence of just life and work becoming overwhelming toward the end of the school year and plans that I had for this episode falling through a little bit. So uh, so that that's due to lateness. And you'll also notice if you go to the show notes or you look at the logo through iTunes for the podcast episode that the podcast logo that I've been using has slightly changed because in the time it took to put this episode together... DC updated its logo again, so I have updated the logo accordingly, and I guess we should be calling this 81 years of DC Comics, or 81 and a half, but uh, there's this episode and the next episode, which is, um, both are ready to go, and and I'm planning on putting them out two weeks uh, after one another, so... That's our behind-the-scenes stuff, which I'm sure bores the crap out of you, but we're going to get to Westerns, Um, and we have really a genre that I'm not very familiar with. Uh, Westerns in general is just not anything that I've ever gotten into. Uh, I, I was the Lone Ranger for Halloween one year when I was about four. Uh, and I think that's because there was a cartoon, there was a Saturday morning cartoon on uh, right around the time or slightly shortly after the Legends of the Lone Ranger TV show. And my parents are baby boomers, so they grew up with stuff like the Lone Ranger and Bonanza and Gunsmoke and, and, uh, all of the John Wayne movies and all of the movies that, and, and TV shows that have defined the Western and popular culture over the course of the last century or so. Um, I've only personally seen a few Western movies and none that are really uh, the classic Westerns in terms of older cinema. Uh, Mine have been more recent. Uh, Young Guns, back in the late 1980s. Unforgiven, which won Best Picture back in 1992, I believe. Tombstone, which is actually one of my favorite Westerns. And... uh, the Three Amigos, if you want to count that one. Uh, I, I I do intend to see 
some of the classic ones. I do intend at one point in my life to watch, I have a, a very short list, but to watch uh, High Noon, True Grit, uh, The Searchers, The Magnificent Seven, and The Wild Bunch. Uh, those are kind of the top five westerns I've never seen and intend on seeing. Maybe How the West Was Won because I've heard that that's one of those movies that is an uh, epic scope. And actually, that's the movie I think of when I think of widescreen because I remember seeing something, and I don't know if it was like a, <clears throat> a Siskel and Ebert special or like a Leonard Maltin special or just something on a, on a VHS or something about widescreen and how the difference between pan and scan and widescreen and they used um, how the West was one as an example because it was filmed it is a widescreen movie like very much a widescreen movie and they they showed how they showed a side by side comparison of the two versions and how the pan and scan version that you were or the TV version you were seeing for years um, really cut so much of the picture out. And so that's when I always, when I think of widescreen, I think of watching movies that I watch on television now on like a Blu-ray where I have a, a more high-def movie, et cetera, TV, et cetera, where that I, that I can see what I missed. Um, it's not for every movie. Uh, personally, Star Trek The Motion Picture is the one that, that I watched recently that I had only ever seen on television or on a VHS copy. And to see it in widescreen on Blu-ray, I was like, wow, there's a lot more to this film than I realized um, but I digress. My point is, um, <clears throat> as I went off on a tangent there, that westerns themselves are, are not my my forte. Cowboys, it's not a you know not not to not to talk disparagingly about the genre. It's just not a genre I've ever been really interested in. Uh, the history of the westward expansion and the uh, the plight of Native Americans in the latter half of the 19th century, that has been interesting to me. But uh, there's a significant portion of 19th century American history that I've never really had that much interest in, in even if I've, I've learned it. I don't know if that has to do with the era in which I grew up. I don't know if it has to do with the geography where I grew up. I grew up in New York, uh, which was not part of Western expansion. And I know a lot about whaling, and I know a lot about how that affected the economy, and I know a, bit, a lot about... Vanderbilt and Carnegie and Rockefeller and that part of the 19th century and early 20th century history. So, you know, um, and then my focus as a kid was uh, a, a previous episode's focus, science fiction, the space race, that sort of stuff that came out of the latter half of the 20th century. But I've enjoyed going through all of these various genres. Westerns was last on the list because I think it was last alphabetically. <laughs> but... I'm curious to see how the Western genre has evolved or, or how it's represented in DC Comics, especially since it is the original genre for DC Comics, or, or one of them. Uh, but I will say that my Western comics experience literally begins and ends with Crisis on Infinite Earths. I believe it's issues two and three where uh, the Monitor sends Green Lantern... And a couple of other heroes, Firebrand maybe, back into the Western era. They meet up with, uh, I know Nighthawk is in there, Jonah Hex is in there. Uh, there might have been a couple of my Batlash or somebody. And uh, that's my experience with Western characters, unless they popped up somewhere else along the line. 
But it's important to note that when I say it's the original genre, I literally, I mean it's literally the original genre. Westerns goes all the way back to the very first page of the very first DC Comics publication. New Fun Comics number one was published according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics on January 11th, 1935. It had a February 1935 cover date. This was not only the first comic book published by the company, but it was first with the first with all original material. Up until then, comic books were collected reprints of newspaper funnies. The cover to the comic was a comic strip itself. So this is before the days of like pin-up images or cover images of, of comics, or at least uh, before DC started doing that. It was a 12-panel strip featuring Jack Woods, and while the writer is unknown, the artist is credited as Lyman Anderson, who has only two credits to his name. Again, I'm getting this information from Mike's Amazing World. New Fun number one and New Fun number two. And in the strip... Uh, Jack Woods is riding a horse near Rio, the Rio Grande, comes across a few Mexican cattle rustlers who hold him at gunpoint and take him to see their boss, Don Nerjoles. Nogales. Nogales? When they, when they arrive at the ranch in the morning, Jack overpowers one of the guys and tells Don, quote, This'll teach you not to have your men hold me up. But Jack does not see Miguel, the guy he thought he'd knocked out, holding a knife that he's about to throw. And the story would continue on the cover of the next issue. Now, New Fun number one is uh, not an easy comic to track down and, and get a copy of. Um, it's not even available digitally, to my knowledge, uh, anywhere. DC doesn't have it uh, on Comixology. And um, I am not a good friend of Tor. So I wasn't able to get any of those. Although, and even the public domain comics website that I've used to get copies of like New Fun Number Five is not available. Um, once again, DC, get this stuff. Get this stuff on the web. Even if it's even if it's like a a class all time classics collection that you put digitally that you could offer at a at a very very discounted rate. I can't imagine. The, logi- the only logistical issue I can think that you might have with putting up very, very early epi- uh, issues of, of say, New Fun or Detective would be um, existing copies that you can scan or something. Like the actual logistics of putting them together and putting uh, to the reprint together. I can't imagine royalties and copyright get in the way because it's so old and some of the stuff probably is in the public domain anyway. So come on, get on that. Mm-hmm. Anyway, what I I do have a copy of the first page of New Fun number one because I have a copy of the Paul Levitz book, The Golden Age of DC Comics, which is this beautiful coffee table book. And the frustrating thing about it is that there was one for the Golden Age, the Silver Age. Maybe the Bronze Age came out. It was solicited at one point, and I know that the Modern Age one, or whatever they were going to call it, did not get published. It was it was canceled. However, there is that seventy five years of DC Comics book that came out a few years ago. That uh, this is kind of the expanded edition of. Anyway, on page nineteen of the book. New Fun number one was reprinted as a full page, so you can actually see it in a vivid, vivid color. It's like I said, it's a twelve-panel grid. Uh, it, it's it's underneath the New Fun, the big comics magazine for ten cents. 
Uh, at the bottom, it says, New Comic Strips, Aircraft, Radio, Movies, Stories, Adventure, Mystery, Supports, Prizes. And uh, Lyman Anderson's pencils are dynamic in a way. I mean, they're not as stiff as some Golden Age stuff. Uh, some of the figures are... Some of the figures are actually a little bit Joe Schuster-esque, because um, I see some of the poses that that look like some of the stuff that um, that like a Joe Schuster would bring to some of those early Superman strips. Uh, there's a great panel in the nine where Jack knocks out Miguel. You have this great panel of it. Now it's, it's a wide shot of the open door. And it says, as they enter, Jack suddenly grasps Miguel's arm and yanks him forward over his back. And Jack's grabbing the guy by the arm and throwing him over his shoulder. And Miguel's like suspended in midair. And it's a nice fluid thing. Although, like I said, it's, it's, with the exception of those last like and then the next panel is him holding the gun over Miguel who's splayed on the floor and it says Miguel lands with a thud um it's for the most part like those last four panels are nice and fluid and they have a continuity to them that like you know of the storytelling the early panels are very much like here's a scene here's a scene here's a scene here's a scene the backgrounds are detailed where they need to be uh, what cracks me up is that the detail on panel number 10 in the bottom left-hand corner is two windows, an orange wall, and a purple floor with with a with a border on between the, the wall and the floor to delineate where the where the where they meet. It's almost as it's about as detailed as a Garfield comic strip, but you know this is this is the the genesis of the comics industry. So uh, and it's people who are working on comic strips and probably. Probably, to my knowledge, and this is me kind of calling from what I've read of the early comics industry, trying to produce these in a fast manner, so you're not going to spend a lot of time in backgrounds. But, you know, where where, where Anderson has to make uh, a a background, you know, he does a pretty good job. You know, where, where they have on panel 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, where you have the men riding their horses over the hill, the ranches at the bottom of the hill, there's mountains in the background, the sunrise... It, it looks it's it's not like incredibly detailed, but it's enough of an establishing shot. Some of the dialogue of the Mexican characters is very stereotypical Mexican character of this time. Si, senor, hola, Mister Ombre, I want to see you. You come along pronto. Nang Nagolas, he wants you. These. T-H-E-E-S is the ranch, so it's like, uh, but again, it's 1935. Uh, but that's, again, that's the very first DC comic, and the very first page of the very first DC comic, so we are digging back to the beginning of DC's history. Now, DC would publish comic strips of Westerns over the course of its, you know, of those first couple of decades, but the first DC title solely devoted to Westerns is Western Comics, and that begins in publication in November 1947, it will last until issue 85 in November of 1960. The most famous character making his first appearance in that title is the original Vigilante, who's featured in issue 1. Soon after, westerns begin outselling superheroes, and they begin to taking over some titles as well, as show when All-Star Comics becomes All-Star Western in 1951, and that would stay that way until 1961. And in a big way, that's the boom period for Western characters. There are a ton being published during the 1950s. And a look at July 1956, uh, which I picked on purpose because that is the publication month, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, of Showcase Number 4, which, as we all know, is the more or less official-unofficial start of the Silver Age because of the first appearance of Barry Allen as The Flash. 
Uh, there, at that point in 1956, there are five Western or Frontier character titles published that month. Six overall, because All-Star Western was bi-monthly. So you had comics based on real-life people such as Daniel Boone. Then you had also Tomahawk, Pow Wow Smith, the Trigger Twins, the Wyoming Kid, and Johnny Thunder. Uh, not the Justice Society member, by the way. The story from that era that I want to look at will star another big DC Western character of the time, and that is Nighthawk. This is from Western Comics number 72. It had a December 1958 cover date, but the publication date, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, is the September 2nd, 1958. Now, I should note that the version of this particular story that I have taken is from the 1992 trade paperback, The Greatest 1950s Stories Ever Told which I have been using big time for this series. There's some discrepancy in the creator credits between the trade and what's found in Mike's Amazing World. The writer, according to the collection, is John Broom, while Mike gives the credit to Gardner Fox. Both have the same penciler, and that's Gil Kane. The inker, as listed on the website, is Joe Giella. The greatest 1950 story as ever told version was recolored by Gene D'Angelo. And our story opens with the following... As a lark, a pair of outlaws gives a gypsy fortune teller $10 to divine Nighthawk's secret identity. But when the crystal gazer amazingly comes up with the correct answer, the outlaws see a way to turn their small investment into a fortune. And we have our story title, The Riddle of the Crystal Ball. So the story's seven pages long or so and goes as such. Two outlaws, Loot and Jed, are at the annual charity bazaar on the parade grounds of Desert Wells and are obviously up to no good probably think that they'll rob the charity money. Just then, two people emerge from the fortune teller's tent and say how the fortune teller knew things about himself that he'd long forgotten. Lute and Jed go into the tent and plunk down their money in order to ask the fortune teller what the crystal ball reveals. The fortune teller says that they will lay their hands on a fortune about 9 o'clock, and then they ask for the secret identity of Nighthawk. The fortune teller says that it's Hannibal Hawks, the guys are happy and excited and plan to rob the bazaar around 9 o'clock that night. But we, the audience, soon see that, that them learning their foe's identity is all a ruse put on by Nighthawk himself, who has volunteered to pretend to be a fortune teller for the whole charity ball thing, but also had the fortune of recognizing Loot and Jed, who had tried to pull a similar heist a year ago, one that he stopped as Nighthawk. Hannibal Hawks spends the rest of the day around the bazaar with the sheriff, and when night falls, he heads to a spring house, which, according to an editor's note, is a cold storage room built into a hill and kept cool by an underground stream passing through it to change into Nighthawk. But the crooks lock him inside, or so they think. They stick up the cashier, but they're foiled by our hero, who then makes his way back to the spring house by swimming back underground so he can pound on the door and shout to be freed. This, of course, leads the guys to think that the fortune teller was lying, and you know what? They're getting 10 years in jail to boot. It's a seven-page story. There's really not much to it beyond what's, uh, what's there, of course. There are other Western stories in this collection. There's a Johnny Thunder story. But I, I like uh, Gil Kane's art. It's really great. I've seen a lot of work in this collection and from this era by famous silver and Bronze Age artists, uh, Carmine Infantino, for instance. And my experience with Gil Kane, or my start with Gil Kane, came in the late 1980s when uh, I would see him doing, or even in the, or through most of the 1980s, when he was 
doing some Green Lantern stuff. Uh, books I have of him, him on Superman and other superheroes at the time, and I didn't like it at the time, and I'm not exactly warm to it now. Uh, his later stuff, it just does not have, in the same way a lot, some of Carmine Infantino's later stuff, does just it doesn't do it for me. Uh, there was a, a I don't know, a, a stiffness. I just I didn't like the way the faces were drawn or whatever. But I go back to see Kane's work and earlier stuff, even a decade earlier than that, and I'm like, wow, this is excellent. Uh, for instance, he is the artist on uh, two of the of one one of the most famous Spider-Man books ever uh, written or drawn, which is the night that Gwen Stacy died and, of course, the issue after that. And I have that as part of an Amazing Spider-Man Essentials collection. His art in that is gorgeous. And I, I don't know if it's because of the inking or if it's just the way his style evolved over time. And here you go even further back, and uh, his characters are... Uh, all the characters, there's a, there's a distinctness to all the faces. Um, and the the setting is drawn with a decent amount of detail granted it's just a fair with a bunch of tents but you you get that feeling of um fluidity through from panel to panel it's not just sort of a very stiff scene being driven uh there's a couple panels here and there where he's you know he does far shots and the two crooks are standing in the shadows and he uses light and shadow very well um the action is dynamic uh on the second to last page nighthawk shows up and he he gets these guys by just basically lassoing them and there's this great wide panel of nighthawk in the back toward the background of the panel holding his lasso leaning back like 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 kind of a tug of war position his hat's flying off uh or his hat's hanging off the back of his head the guy uh in the throw loop when a prize booth is kind of leaning over to watch and he's smiling and the two guys are in the front and they're both off the ground just as if they'd been caught midair and like they're being pulled back so there's that that I, so they're not laying they're not lying stiff um and just standing there with a rope around them they they do look like they've been grabbed out of midair so it's really really uh good dynamic art and uh, I, I really enjoyed seeing what Kane did with this. It, it made it, it made the story exciting because the story, it's succinct. It's straightforward. I mean, you're talking about a foiled heist by two outlaws. Uh, there's a lot of happens in the setup. It gives you a little bit of background about Nighthawk and who he is. But and there's a lot that's in, that's also there's also a lot that happens to be very coincidental when it comes to the plot. But it's a seven page story. You can't do too much with a seven-page story in the same way we saw with a lot of our science fiction stories and some of the the shorter uh shorter things we've looked at especially since from this era of 19 of the 1950s you know you consider your audience and consider the length of the story you have to tell and you know i give it credit it's it's a uh it's nice succinct and holds up pretty well even though it's been about 60 years at this point almost only yeah, about 60 years at this point so that is nighthawk that is from 1958 and all-star western what i'm going to do right now is take a break and when i come back i am going to uh, take us a little further in time talk about how the western genre evolved and survived and talk about the one character who is probably the most famous dc comics western character jonah hex 
This is an imaginary podcast, which may never have happened. The Short Box Showcase. But then again may have. About a father and daughter. I'm Professor Allen. And I'm Emily. Who came from Ohio and talked about comics. Walking Dead. Tintin. Black Lightning. White Tiger. It tells of their rise to glory, when the great guests were yet to be booked. Let's put it this way, Shogun Warriors wasn't going to win any Eisners. And the great feats of editing, not yet performed. And this is Ultra 7, this is Ultraman Jack, and this is Ultraman Taro, and this is Ultraman Leo, and this is Ultraman... Of how they spoke at length. This continuity is really the brainchild of nitpicking nerds the world over. But to be fair, the best kind of confession is the Force Confession. And reviewed in brief tales that explore creatively the bounds of a given character's history. Red Sun is wonderful with a very strange ending. Of brilliant creators before their fall from grace. This is the era where Miller is at the height of his creative and artistic powers, and the ability of strong writing to encapsulate and transcend its time. Flash of Two Earths by Gardner Fox. This is an imaginary podcast. Aren't they all? Shortbox Showcase is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Check us out on the web at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search in iTunes for Relatively Geeky or Shortbox Showcase. And remember, we're not experts. We're just family. So Westerns start to fall out of favor as we get the return of superheroes to the forefront of comics in the very late 1950s and into the 1960s. This, of course, as I mentioned, starts out with the debut of characters like Barry Allen, a.k.a. The Flash, as well as the Hal Jordan Green Lantern, the Ray Palmer Adam. Uh, You eventually will, toward the late 60s, get the new look Batman. And this continues, not just in DC, but there's another company that really uh, makes a splash in about 1961 in the superhero genre. I think the name of the company was Marvel. I'm not sure. I'll have to check on that. Anyway, Western comics start to die out, but they get a bit of a revival in the early 1970s. There's a revival of All-Star Western in 1970 where we get characters such as Pow Wow Smith, Outlaw, El Diablo, and a lot of reprints of 1950s stories with Davy Crockett and Buffalo Bill, which is kind of what we saw with stuff like Strange Adventures and some of the other science fiction books that I looked at. All-Star Western becomes Weird Western with issue 12, and it adds two characters, Batlash, and one we're going to look at here who is Jonah Hex. I have very little experience with Jonah Hex, like I said, pretty much Crisis on Infinite Earths and the two issues of Hex that I bought and I covered one of. I do have a copy of uh, the hardcover of Jonah Hex No Way Back, which came out uh, within the last decade or so. I found that in a, in a discount bin. I think it was a $5 discount bin or something in my comic store and decided that it was uh, it was worth grabbing. And I'm um, looking forward to reading that. I haven't read that. But so what I did, so that since I don't really have much experience with it, I just pulled a classic sort of, well, I guess a back-to-the-bin style thing. And I went to my, lo- my LCS, flipped through the back issue bins, and found a copy. They had a few Jonah Hex comics, so I just pulled out a random one. So this is from the Jonah Hex series that started in 1977 and ran until 1985. 
and and that ended with 92 because they replaced it with the post-apocalyptic science fiction adventure series Hex, an issue of which I covered during my science fiction episode. This one is Jonah Hex number 48. It's cover dated May of 1981 with a February 5th, 1981 release date, according to Mike's Amazing World. And our story is titled The Vulture Creek Massacre. Script is by Michael Fleischer. Art by Dick Ayers and Tony DiZaniga. Lettering is Shelley Lefferman. Coloring is Bob LaRose. Editing is Ross Andrew. The cover is by DiZaniga. It shows Jonah front and center holding a gun while his while behind him on his left are some Indians, one of whom is holding a torch, and on the right is his friend who is tied to a tree and about to be burned alive. The caption says, Choose, Jonah. Let your old friend die a slow death by torture. Shoot him yourself. We open with Jonah shooting at some whiskey bottles, and his wife, Mai Ling, wants to know why he's doing target practice when he should be making sure that the fields get plowed. He apparently had promised her when they got married that he would put his past behind him and settle down. He said he has settled down. Their argument is interrupted, however, by an old friend of his, Samson Graves, who comes by to tell him that he heard about Jonah being married and settled down. The two old friends begin reminiscing, and Samson stays for dinner, during which Mei Ling suggests that he remove his gloves, but Samson can't. And we get his backstory from the days when he was with the 4th Cavalry. He was off in the woods and saw the body of a drowned Paiute girl. He picked her up and was probably about to bring her back to the village when he was set upon by a group of Paiutes who accused him of killing her. They took him to the village and removed some of his fingers before he was rescued, so he wears the gloves to hide his deformity. Now, he lets the two in on his problem. He's being chased by engines, as he puts it, all for the crime of drinking the water in a stream in Crow territory. He fought several of them off and finally wound up at Jonah's farm. Jonah then decides to help, and he suits up. Myling protests, wondering why he's going to bring his gun, and Jonah just heads off, telling her to sleep tight. Jonah and Samson scope out the party of crows, and Jonah immediately recognizes the leader as High Hands Bear, someone he's familiar with and friendly with. He says that this is good for them because he'll be able to talk instead of fight with them. But Samson decides to start shooting. He screams that they're under attack, to which Jonah responds by punching him. The two begin fighting, and their fight is stopped by the presence of High Hands Bear and his men. They explain to Jonah that Samson wasn't being chased for drinking their water. He was being chased because he murdered four of their people in cold blood. Bear says that the law dictates that Samson be taken back to the village where he will be put on trial and if found guilty, tortured. Samson starts screaming about how he doesn't want to be tortured and then, as he's about to be dragged away, Jonah shoots him and leaves. Hex returns home at sunset to find Mei Ling gone. He heads down the road and catches up with her, finding her in a wagon. She tells him that she is going to leave him because he didn't make good in his promise to give up his old life. He tells her it won't happen again, and they say they love one another, and then they head home. I'll start with the cover here. Uh, it is... I, I've, I, my familiarity with Tony Zizaniga's pencils is is not much. I, I'm pretty familiar with his inks. He inked a number of issues of the, of the NOM, uh, which I've been covering if you are familiar with my other podcast in country uh uh over over two true freaks uh he did a number he inked wayne van zandt for quite a bit and he's really really good uh and his inks really really good are in here and the art i mean the art throughout this issue is gorgeous um the the issues you know the book is is a little bit old so it's 
it's on the old paper and the coloring, you know, it's, it's a little muted and faded. I actually am curious as to what this would look like in a reprint where you can make the colors brighten them up or make them pop a little bit better so they're not on the old paper. Uh, but it's just even from um, the cover, Hex is a little stiff there. Um, it he You can see him sweating. The way he's got the gun held up to center, you kind of can't tell if he's pointing it at himself or if he's just kind of holding it up because that's how you hold it up. It's almost like you would ask if he, you would kind of wish if he had just had it a little off center. I mean, this is me nitpicking a cover where the background is just great. You have on one, on the left hand side of him or my left, his right, uh, the Indians holding a, uh, a torch on the right. You have Samson strung up on the tree. Um, really, really great. The art inside, you have uh, even the first page. The first page, which is the splash page with Joda just shooting the whiskey bottles. It's it's just dynamic as hell. And, and so is the art throughout here. Uh, Dizaniga gives Dick Ayres's, uh pencils a lot of depth. Uh, it's They're dark in a way they have to be. The figures are, are nice and detailed. You know, in comparison to a lot of the superhero stuff at the time, which which could get that way too, this really fits the sort of more realistic setting of this Western uh, genre. The one that, like, you know, you could see these people as people in a in a real world. None of them are particularly attractive. Uh, they all look, you know, Samson uh, on the page on page twelve where they're getting attacked or. He says, can't you see we're under attack Where after he shot a few people? The way his face is and he's screaming, he, he looks like a real person. It, it Maybe it is photo reference, I don't know, but he looked, it looks like it was taken from a photograph. And it's done in this wide panel where you see the dead, you see his face, but to the right of him you see the dead body and these sort of just outlines of people, uh, of, of him going after some of the people and uh this it 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 serves the story really well the steer the story is typical of just a tv show um i've seen this plot i've seen this plot on action shows i've seen this plot on um sitcoms it's the old friend returning and he's more crooked than originally thought or he's more flawed than originally thought uh, there's even the trope of a nagging wife in here, or the uh, every time I'm out, they pull me back in type of trope. Uh, I don't know how this fits into the continuity of Jonah Hex's story. I mean, the, the series ended with 92, so there's more than 40 more issues in the series left. So I don't know how his marriage ended, or, or if it did, or, or how this played itself out. But uh, what I like about it is how Fleischer Fleischer uh, writing in the 80s as opposed to the 50s or 40s does not have the Indians as enemies. He subverts that trope. And this was a it's a very stereotypical trope of early of early westerns that at least, you know, in my research I found or that's that's known is that the Indians were the bad guys. And he subverts that by having them be uh, neighbors, essentially. And Hex, knowing these people and that he's essentially worked with them. So it's not... He's not going completely in the other direction of 
the sort of dances with wolves type of thing where it's like, look at these noble people, how it's terrible what we did to them, which I'm not downplaying the essentially government-sanctioned genocide that happened in the 19th century. Um, I'm just saying that the way they're portrayed is a very, very straightforward manner without having to be preachy about you know Native Americans and American Indians. And I think that's a really good approach to it, um, that that the Indians are, like I said, they're neighbors, they're other people, they're people you work with, they're part of your community, as opposed to enemies or overly spiritual or, or whatever you want to whatever you want to call it. Samson's just crooked and he's a liar. And there's a price to be paid. There are consequences for his dishonesty. And I like how that is done. I like how Jonah is uh, very cool about his um, about what his friend does, and he's not uh, he he's, he doesn't really plead a case. He knows that he knows that he or Samson is in the wrong, and uh, and he believe. And the thing is, he believes his his associates in the, in the crow tribe because these are people he knows and he's worked with a heck of a lot more than this this old friend of his um because this is this is what happens it's on page 13 um you know he says chief bear comes in and he says uh he starts speaking in crow he says speak plain english bear unless of course the past 10 years has fogged up your mind so much you forgot how to speak by the spirits of jonah jonah hex is that you well it sure ain't abraham lincoln you're palavering with Bear. Now, what's all this mess between you and my friend here? Your friend has murdered four of my people, Jonah. Just moments ago, he shot two more. But they are not badly wounded and will live. Samson's already told me this story, Bear. Then Braves killed and attacked him at Vulture Creek for no good reason. Whatever he's done, it was self-defense. No, my good friend, it was not self-defense, but a massacre. A massacre of little children. A massacre that had no blind, no cause, no reason for blind hatred that burns within your friend like an unholy fire. He was, it was, he was a crime against the, his was a crime against the Crow people on Crow land, and so he must return to us with our village and face trial under our law. Our treaty with the white man guarantees us this right. What's going to happen to him, Bear? If found guilty, he will face three long days of painful torture. And then, no, don't let him take me, Jonah. Don't let him torture me again. I killed them, engine. I didn't kill them, engine boys. At least, at least, I didn't mean to kill them. I just hate him, Jonah. That's all. I mean, it ain't my fault. I can't stand the sight of kids, is it, Jonah? I'd rather die. Let him torture me again, Jonah. For the love of heaven, Jonah, do something. Don't let me take him. And he shoots him dead and then they say thank you Jonah thank and he 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 falls down saying thank you Jonah thank you so Jonah kind of solves the problem for everybody because you know he he does his friend a favor but at the same time it's like he's meeting out justice according to the law so it's not again it's it's a you know you basically committed a hate crime here and you deserve punishment and he decides to just go ahead and and, and take care of it like i said for the simplicity of the story and uh having this character who's very much a just uh, this loner who's always been portrayed as a loner from what i understand but is still this you know very much walks the path of the righteous uh i'd say the art really elevates it in a way that is great 
and uh, and and it's fun. In fact, I'd I'd like to look up more of these and see if I can find more of them them here and there. Uh, there's another story in the book I'm not going to cover, but there's an El Diablo story written by Ted Skimmer and Ross Andrew and Tony DiZaniga, the artists. At a glance, it also looks gorgeous. Um, you know, I think Tony DiZaniga probably deserves a significant amount of credit for making this series and making this character in this book what it was. From what I understand, westerns are not really published uh, very much by DC. Uh, there was a time where they were... Uh, there have been some Jonah Hex series over the last 20 years or so. Uh, most recently, as part of the New 52, there was a revival of All-Star Western by Justin Gray and Jimmy Palmiotti. It did okay for a while, but then got canceled in one of those like first or second waves of, of cancellations of the New 52, along with uh, Demon Knights, for instance, which was a book that I loved and was so, so annoyed to see canceled. Uh, and Because I, I bought it on the regular. Um, and that's really the last time I remember seeing Western. So it's fairly recent, but I know that there's been some Vertigo stuff over the years. And, uh, and but the genre in itself, uh, not as dead essentially as romance comics in DC, but is definitely um, on life support, so to speak, or is definitely faded into the background. And it's a genre that has really faded into the background overall for much of comics, if you think about it. Uh, I don't see a lot of independent western comics it, when I'm flipping through previews a lot of comic books still stick to the superhero or the licensed property horror uh, some war a lot of science fiction so sci-fi fantasy that sort of stuff and westerns you know westerns show up just as, as fewer times than say comedy and, and things like that so uh, I'd be curious to see what DC or, or or any other company might do with this genre, uh, especially as we get further and further away from an era where westerns are not. I mean, western movies aren't even being made. So, is it a dead genre? Is there potential to revive it? Uh, that's that's a good question for us to, to ask, uh, just in our entertainment, our popular culture as a whole. But I hope that in this uh, 45 minutes or so, you've, you've enjoyed hearing me just touch on Westerns and, and explain their significance to DC Comics as a whole. Next time in two weeks, I am going to wrap this up. I'm going to return to the genre that DC is most known for, and that is the genre I've been avoiding for the most part here, with the exception of a few stories here and there, and that is the superhero genre. I have a special guest coming along with me. It'll be the irredeemable Shag, and we're going to sit down and really get into showcase number 100 so until then uh you can please go online send email um if you listen to pop culture affidavit episode 62 which should be out if it's not out by the time this is out it should be out soon i uh cover some of the feedback from various episodes in that episode uh i, I do a mail section um, so please keep commenting, keep sending me emails, uh, leave iTunes review for pop reviews for Pop Culture Affidavit, uh, help the show out, and uh, thank you very much for listening, and take care.
Thank you for listening to 80 Years of DC Comics, a podcast miniseries presented by Pop Culture Affidavit and Two True Freaks. All comics talked about in this episode are copyright DC Comics, and since this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes and no money is made, no infringement is intended. You can find show notes and supplemental information on this episode at Pop Culture Affidavit, which is located at popcultureaffidavit.com. Interested in leaving feedback? You can email me at popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com or go to the Facebook group, which is facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit. Thanks for listening and come back next month for another look at the history of DC Comics. (laughs) 